Let's dive in. Romans. We're still in Romans. It's a jolly big book. Um, we're up to chapter 12 of 16, 18? 16. 16. So we're nearly there. Well done for staying the course. Now, Romans 12 is an interesting point in the book. Um, it's quite a major turning point in the letter. Paul has laid out for 11 chapters uh, the gospel and its righteousness, its consequences, and the place of Israel in God's purposes and giving direction as to how to live. And he's move, moving now from discussing some fairly heavy theological content into the rubber meets the road type of stuff. He's now telling us what it means in our daily life. It's the first time in Romans where Paul mentions how to behave and says, okay, you've heard all this, I've told you all this, this is what it means for you. And it's significant that it comes after such a large chunk of theological foundation. He's laid the foundation for ethics and Christian living and it's been strongly laid, that foundation. And if you think back, your memory is probably better than mine, think back over all the things that Hamish and others have shared, we've covered quite a lot of ground, quite a lot of issues, quite a lot of questions. And the foundation that Paul has laid out is that the foundation is not in the law, or it is no longer in the law, but in living by the Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. Out of love, as slaves of righteousness, and living out of an in-Christ status, alive in Christ and dead to sin and the law. And if you really want to get back into that, Romans 5 to 8, chapters 5 to 8 is where you want to look. This living by the Spirit and not of the flesh. And as we do that, the believers, we as believers are free in Christ, but not free to sin. We are free to be what we were created to be, to live out of love and in the service of God, others, and the world. It's a voluntary service that we're called into, patterned after Christ's example, Christ who came from the Father, God in essence, and yet who emptied himself and took on the nature of a servant and poured himself out in obedience and service to God and for fallen humanity, that's us, to save us from our plight. And these are guidelines that we as believers in Christ should follow. Absence is the language of must and the language of law. Although interestingly, some translations still sneak that back in there. There are guidelines that we should follow, not laws to obey. They're not a reworking of the law of Moses, and they're not the law of Paul. Now Romans 12 needs to be read against the Roman notions of pride, one-upmanship, elitism, ambition, and other drivers that are common in the Roman culture of the day. And if we read it against this backdrop, what Paul has to say is quite revolutionary dynamic stuff. It is asking a lot of people. The dominant motifs are a living a life patterned after Christ with a renewed mind in humility, humility, love and peace. Now, technology is never my friend. Is it my friend today? 
It's not my friend. I'm going to throw it on the floor, Hamish, and jump on it. There we go. Romans 12.1 Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Now I'm reading from the net version, the New English Translation, and whatever version you're most familiar with will have slightly different wording. That's okay. Right, exhorting us by the message of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices. When you hear the word sacrifice, what comes to mind? Death. <laughs> a living death. We're in for a good ride here, aren't we? And yet that's not what Paul's on about, obviously. With that, the, that verse, he, he centres ethics in Christian living on the pattern laid down by Christ, the self-sacrificing life of service. And beginning with the mercies of God, Paul reminds us of the previous 11 chapters where he has outlined the mercy of God found in the gospel. It is the heart and character of God that undergirds the gospel, his desire to love, to show mercy, to save. It's the Missio Dei, which is the Latin term for the mission of God. It comes from the loving, merciful heart of God. In view of God's mercy, offering our bodies as living sacrifices is the right and proper response. And when Paul talks of bodies here, the Greek word is soma. He means the whole being, not just this physical shell. Some of us have better physical shells than other, <laughs> others. Mine's deteriorating quickly, um, but it'll hang in there, I hope. Not just the soul, not just the mind. Because I guess there's a temptation for us to compartmentalise our lives and tuck our faith away somewhere where it doesn't affect everything. It's just a soul issue, it's just a mind issue. It's just a Sunday thing. It just happens on Tuesday nights at Life Group. And by using the term body in this way, Paul is emphasising that this is a decision that is all or nothing. And it recalls again Christ's complete self-giving life of service, even to death, and affirms that that pattern is holy and pleasing to God. The last sentence of the verse is quite a tricky one to translate from the Greek. The Greek, the, particularly the, the terms that get translated as, the net translates that as reasonable service. The Greek is uh, logikos, I've got to pronounce this one carefully, latreia. And it's usually translated as some variation of spiritual act of worship. But Greek is a bit tricky, particularly when you're speaking English as your natural language or trying to translate it into English. Because logikos means spiritual, but it means logical. It means thoughtful, it means considered. And latreia means worship, but ministry and service. And the Greek ideas behind that, some of those terms were far more tightly entwined than we, in our English-speaking world, understand them often. There wasn't so much that distinction between, say, worship and service. 
and worship and ministry and ministry and service. They're all part of the same concept. And likewise, logic and spiritual things, logical thought, thoughtful, considered, was all wrapped up in the same concept. And so if you read from the NIV, it is translated true and proper act of worship. And yet, service is probably the best option in this case. Because what follows is Paul's appeal, and Paul's appeal is far broader than our common understanding of worship. It's that whole of life type of concept. And capturing exactly what he meant by logikos is also d difficult. And you could go for rational, authentic, appropriate, intelligent, thoughtful, reasonable, as in accordance with reason, or logical. But Paul's emphasis is on mindset. And so something that captures the mind is important here. Reasonable, in our common usage, often leaves far too much to subjective judgment and consideration of other factors that don't come into play. When, you, when I say reasonable, or when I hear reasonable, I think, hmm, they're going to be mild, middle of the road, not going to offend anybody. Paul's not after that. So perhaps true service or authentic service is the best translation to capture the meaning of what Paul's on about here. So that verse would end up reading, Alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your authentic service, your authentic response. The point is that offering all that we have, are, and have in this world in service to God, as Jesus did on the cross, is authentic. Philippians 2, 1-8 lays this out beautifully. We are to take on the mindset of Christ, who though God in status and power, emptied himself, becoming a slave, and humbled himself, became a human, obedient to the point of death on the cross. This is the pattern that Paul sees lying at the heart of the Christian life. Might have solved it. Moving on, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Almost all translations use world for the Greek term aeon. The Greek word for world is cosmos, and Paul didn't use that. Aeon actually means age. Not that Paul has any particular time period in mind, but it's a, ref a reference to the classic Jewish and Christian apocalyptic two-age system where we live in a fallen, sinful age and there is a redeemed, perfected age to come after Christ's return. We've perhaps lost a bit of that sense in modern times, but it was very much understood in the world of Paul. Um, in the Jewish and Christian world. So perhaps a more accurate translation is to use age rather than world, or to include a temporal modifier such as present world. And he's trying to get at that we shouldn't conform ourselves to the current secular standards. The thoughts and modes and mores and norms of society today are not necessarily good. And he's urging us to turn away from the values of any era that enslave 
be it the values of power based on might, the values of wisdom, pride, ambition, envy and rivalry that dominated the Roman world in Paul's day, or the consumerism, hedonism, rationalism, relativism and other isms that we talk about in the modern world. Instead, we are urged to allow, even seek, transformation from these patterns and the norms of secular society and be transformed into the cruciform pattern of Christ. And this is done by the renewal of the mind. Again, the emphasis on thinking and mindset and deliberate decision. It's not brain surgery. And it's not brainwashing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, which though not explicit in the text, is implied. The healing, restoring and purifying of the mind. Conforming it to God's ways and patterns. The purpose of this transformation is that we would grow and mature in our familiarity with God's will and our discernment of God's will in every situation. It is not setting us up to judge God's will or to test in the fact whether it would pass or fail, but so that we would know what it is. And the idea that Paul is trying to get across is that we would become so familiar that we wouldn't be frozen waiting for God to instruct us at every turn. But in almost all situations, we would just know what God's will is, what we should do, what we should say, how we should behave. Christian living is seeking the good and being motivated to please God. It's not perfectionism, but it's an authentic walking in relationship with God seeking completeness of love. And if that's starting to sound a bit hard and heavy, but like an impossible task that Paul is setting us to, resisting the world and pleasing God, don't worry. It's all grace. Grace comes in. Paul moves on. For the grace given to me, I say to every... For by the grace, sorry, given to me, I say to every one of you not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But to think with sober discernment, as God has distributed, distributed to each of you a measure of faith. There's a lot of thinking going on in this verse. But for me, the thing that jumped out was the individual apportioning of grace to every believer. Appealing for a mindset characterized by humility. Each of us living out our faith as apportioned by God through the gifts God has bestowed upon us. Again, the emphasis there is a guy that doesn't have a very good view of himself. Thinks more highly of himself than he ought, perhaps. Again, the emphasis on thinking and having a reasonable view of self. Accepting and acknowledging that God, how God has gifted us and that we are reliant on him for both the gifting and the faith to exercise those gifts. I think the verse leaves little doubt that we are all gifted by God. And I can remember as quite a much younger Christian going through that um, stage of, oh, what's God gifted me with? I don't think he's gifted me. And trying to work out what it was. Um, 
Was I a healer? Could I go around slapping people's foreheads and making their legs grow? Did I have the gift of speaking? Could I speak in tongues? Could I prophesy? Could I interpret? All those wonderful things. But I think we need to be in no doubt that each of us has been gifted by God, uh, is gifted by God. God does give those gifts to all of us. But he gives us also the faith to match that gift so that we can operate and use that gift in his service. The reasonable view of self, which Paul emphasises, and in doing so he addresses one aspect of the renewed mind, humility. Humility stands squarely against pride and arrogance, and those were specific Greek and Roman issues that Paul would have had to live with, um, and they were likely to be a constant challenge for Paul and in the Roman context of the Roman church, but throughout um, the known world at that, part, that, at that point, um, they were likely to be common in Jerusalem and Antioch and the other churches that Paul pastored and, and planted and cared for. And of course, pride and arrogance are still alive and well today. And this suggests, this suggests that they are not <coughs> a trait belonging to any given culture, but more a trait of fallen humanity along with a screed of other things which we don't really like very much when we think about it. At the opposite end of the spectrum to pride and arrogance is self-abasement and putting ourselves down. And, and I think as, as New Zealanders we're, we're quite adept at this. And Paul is not suggesting that that is a result of a balanced view of oneself, of so, sober discernment of who we are. And it's just as damaging as pride and arrogance if we are continually putting ourselves down and thinking ourselves less than we really are. The truth that God in his grace has given each believer the measure of faith we require to exercise the gifts he has given us in his service leaves no room for either end of that spectrum. It requires that we we learn to view ourselves as he does. We learn to view ourselves properly, with love um, and with true humility, which is not that self-abasement. We're not to be doormats to be walked over. And this is leads us on to Paul's next verse, which is for... Just in, as in one body we have many members and not all mem the members serve the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually we are members who belong to one another. And you can see how if we have a wrong view of ourselves, how we can skew the body, how we can affect the others in the body. For the truth is that the church is the body of Christ. We are one. Um, and we should be used to this if we've read many of Paul's writings. Paul customarily uses the body analogy um, to describe the church, to describe our relationship with one another, to describe our relationship with Christ. 
and he expands on this in Ephesians and Colossians. It's worth having a read in your own time um, of those. The church Christ's body is comprised of all believers. And just like a body, there are a myriad different functions involved in the healthy life of the church. So we believers in Christ are the many parts of Christ's body, each with differing functions, yet all interdependent on one another, intertwined in relationship, our paths inextricably linked. And this is not just in Church Northwest. This is in the church in New Zealand. This is in the church around the globe. We are inextricably entwined and interdependent on the Anglican church that meets in Alahays in England. Pick that name out of the hat. I know it's there. <laughs> We're inextricably linked with um, Tom's old church in, in England, with Nate's church in America, with churches in Canada, Brazil, anywhere you think. We are all part of that body even though we may not know any of them. Um, somehow, and I don't really get it, <laughs> we are one. And Paul explicitly includes himself with us in the body when he says, so we who are many. No believer is left out. We are all included. We all have a place. We are all needed together serving God and Christ and members of one another. So unfortunately you need me, but fortunately I get to have all you guys and everyone else. And we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If the gift is prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to your faith. If it is service, then serve. If teaching, then teach. If encouragement, then encourage. If it is giving, then give with sincerity. If it is leadership, then lead with diligence. If it is showing mercy, then do so cheerfully. With this verse, Paul is focusing specifically on charismata, gifts of grace which we each have according to the grace given to us. Clearly he sees God equipping his people differently to perform the many functions required to make the church work, just as the body requires the full range of body parts working together to make it work as designed. Now I know that people say, well, you can do that, you spleen. You do that leg. Lose an arm. Hey, it's a flesh wound. Come back and fight, you coward, as Monty Python said. You can do without so many parts of your body, and the analogy kind of starts to break down, but to work as designed... Every part of your body is required. Now this isn't an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Um, and to get a fuller picture of Paul's understanding of, of charismata, of the spiritual gifts, you need to reflect also on 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. None of these lists is exhaustive. And each differs according to the context into which Paul is speaking. And here in Romans, he emphasizes the gifts of ministry and service. The list here is a balance between upfront and background, and yet all of equal value. The grace given to us suggests again the different imparting of God's grace to each believer in accordance with his purpose. 
God distributes as he wills, and we should accept the gifts we're given and our place as a privilege, not a burden, nor a basis for envy. And when I say we accept our place, it's not that there is a ranking or an order, but it is accept our belonging and use those gifts that we have been given by God to the measure of our faith for his service in his body. Apparently my spiritual gift is in being silly with the toddlers. I'd love that one. That'd be great. But this passage isn't really about the gifts other than the fact that we have them. And as we grow in faith, it is critical that we become more aware of the gifts that God has given us. And it is critical that we seek to serve God with those gifts. I remember when I was youth pastoring, just doing some math, 30-something years ago, um, in Wellington, we built a new church building at one stage, this was fantastic, and every morning, every Sunday we'd turn up and the seats would be set out. During the week it was used for other things. And then one week we turned up and the seats weren't set out. And the sad news was that Dez had died. Dez was an old guy that would come in each week to set the seats out. That was his gift. And it was, it was actually you know, quite a little thing, but... but for that Sunday, the church didn't function properly. Um, I, that, that really hits home to me that, that there's no gift too small, nor is there any gift too large. Um, those of you who have read Adrian Plass's books, The Secret Diary of Adrian Plass, his wife at one point thinks that the part of the body that represents her best is a small flake of skin on the elbow. But as you read the book, you realise that she's far more important than that. And yet that sort of is an example of somewhat of the view we should have of ourselves. Um, but not exactly, I guess. And we need each other to help our understanding of ourselves, to avoid overestimating or underestimating how God has gifted us, so that we have a confident humility before God and serve faithfully in his kingdom, just as he intends. If you can't read that, Molly's squinting. It says, I was just fine until you stood up in service and testified that golf was one of your spiritual gifts. <laughs> Sorry, Aaron. It's humbling for me to think that God has gifted me. And um, I've learnt, I hope, some, most, of the areas that he's gifted me, and perhaps more importantly, the areas that he hasn't gifted me in. Um, and my prayer for us all would be that we, we take time to sit before God frequently to ask him, what is it you want me to be doing, Lord? What have you gifted me in? 
and that we would ask each other and start those conversations to help one another along the road. For we are one body, inextricably linked, and all of us need renewal of the mind, which is the work of the Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would renew our minds daily, hourly, every minute if necessary. Father, that we would know your will. We would become so familiar with your will that it is what we would always do. Lord, that your, your body, your church, your kingdom would be built up and expanded and your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.